Let us pray. So, Father, we indeed would ask that you would lead us into greater holiness and conformity to the image of your Son. And, Lord, that you would find us truly and ready to do your will and walk in obedience to your holy calling. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. And again, good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. So glad that you've joined us as well. It's been an exciting and busy weekend here at All Saints Church. Um, we had our monthly food giveaway yesterday. And thank you to everyone who assisted with preparing for that and also then assisted with food distribution yesterday. We served right at about 235 families yesterday. And so thanks be to God. Yes. And I'm hearing wonderful reports of more people coming to the prayer tent as they're, they're leaving and being touched as well. So thank you to all of you who minister in the prayer tent as well. And thank the Lord for what he's doing in our midst. Um, Father Jed is not here this morning. Um, Emily was under the weather. And so he texted me at 6 and said, um, I'll be there for the newcomers gathering at 1230 today. But... Um, can you handle things on your own? And then between services, Mother Jessica volunteered to assist with the service today. So thank you for jumping in. And um, please be praying for Emily as well. She's got a, a bug that's going around. And um, yes, wonderful week last week with Mike Capola. Did everyone enjoy Deacon Mike to be priest? Father Mike this afternoon at four o'clock um, and his wife and nine children. We're very much looking forward to continue to build partnerships. Part of my heart here for our church is as we, that we build more robust partnerships with church planters, especially here in our diocese as um, we move into the vision God's called our diocese to of um, endeavoring to plant 50 churches by the year 2030 in the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic. So we are on our way, and thanks be to God for folks like the Capolas who have um, stepped up and answered that call. Well, I invite you now to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them. And you may also want to reach under your pew and grab a prayer book, unless you have your prayer book on your phone. We're going to look today, um, beginning at Psalm 63, but I will be looking at Psalm 63 as it's found in the Psalter in our prayer book versus the ESV translation, because that's what we read a little while ago. We'll begin with Psalm 63, and then we'll also be looking at our gospel reading from Matthew 6, and our New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians. Um, this Sunday, and again next Sunday, I will be preaching on stewardship. As we move toward Pledge Sunday for this year, which is Sunday, October 23rd. That Sunday, October 23rd, when we bring our tithe pledges for the coming year to the altar and commit them to the Lord. Now those of you who have been around All Saints since I came as rector in 2019 have probably started to figure out that when I preach on stewardship, I don't primarily talk about money. We will indeed talk about money some, and a little bit more next Sunday um, than today. However, I don't talk exclusively or primarily about money when it comes to stewardship because money is not the core or the essence of the matter when it comes to stewardship. Money is indeed one barometer or indicator of a person's heart. It's kind of like if I look at someone or you look at someone and say, you look really pale or you look like you're short of breath. There's an outward visible evidence, but there's something going on inside of them much deeper that that, that points to. And the same can be true 
not can be, is true of how we handle our finances and align the resources, align the resources God has entrusted to us, it really points to a deeper matter of the heart. Because at its essence, stewardship is a matter of the heart. And how fully or not our heart and life priorities are aligned with God's heart and with the priorities of his eternal kingdom. A kingdom of which you and I are citizens if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So what I want to focus on today is what I call the essence of stewardship. And in exploring this topic, I'll be moving a little bit more than I usually do between our different readings from this morning. Most Sundays when I preach, I focus primarily on one text. But we'll be looking at Psalm 63 and our gospel reading and our New Testament reading today. I want to begin with Psalm 63 and pose this question to you. What is our heart's desire? What is our heart's desire? A year or two ago, I remember having a conversation with Alison Barfoot, missionary to Uganda, who we support along with, with Jessica, Mother Jessica, who is also a missionary to Uganda. And this conversation with Alison was in part about her father, Bernie, who went to be with the Lord a few years ago. He was a wonderful Christian man. I know some of you may have known Bernie Barfoot personally, and as well as Allison's mother, Martha. They've been around the Anglican world for for decades. But Allison was sharing with me how when she would seek counsel from her father with his Navy background as a commander and um, a science and mathematics background, the conversation would often boil down to a single question which he would ask her, what do you want? Or to say it another way, what is your end game? What is your end goal? Or what is your ultimate desire in this matter that was being discussed? And that question, what do you want, is really applicable when we think of stewardship. But even more broadly, when we think about our walk with God in its totality. King David in Psalm 63, our psalm for this morning, paints a beautiful picture for us of a rightly focused, singular heart's desire. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 3 says this, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh also longs after you in a barren and dry land where there is no water. Thus I have looked upon you in your holy place that I might behold your power and glory. Now that psalm brings back memories for me. Um, When I was a new Christian in high school, I learned that psalm, first of all, because it was set to music, and I'm really going to date myself here, but I think a few other people might remember, the Christian group, the second chapter of Acts. Anyone else remember the second chapter of Acts? And they did a musical rendition, a beautiful musical rendition of Psalm 63, that when I hear this psalm read, I can still hear Matthew Ward singing that in the back of my head. But as we look at Psalm 63, we need to understand the context of King David in writing this psalm. David is being pursued by Absalom and his rebellious co-conspirators. David has fled Jerusalem. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. And he was at very real risk of losing his kingdom and even his life at this time. Yet in all of this, 
David's greatest fear was losing his nearness to God. What did David want? Look at the words of this psalm. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs after you. That I might behold your power and your glory. Your loving kindness is better than life itself. As long as I live, I will magnify you and lift up hands in your name. What David wanted was God. More of God. Greater depth of intimate fellowship and ever-increasing union with his master and his redeemer. David thirsts for God because, as one commentator says, he longs for God as the fulfillment of his elementary needs. David knew that God alone was his source for even the most basic needs of life. He knows that God is truly and alone his source and supply. Even in the midst of flight, fear, and temporal uncertainty, King David desired more of God. And he desired this above all else. And the question for you and me today, I believe, is what do we want? Do we have the same kind of desire as David? What do we want? Are our life priorities such that above all else, my desire and your desire is God and more of him? Closely related to this is my second point, which is also a question. To whom or what are we surrendered? In looking at both King David's situation and the words he wrote in Psalm 63, it is clear that he was surrendered to God, to God alone and to God completely above all else. In this morning's gospel reading, Jesus also gets at this question in Matthew 6, to whom or what are we surrendered? And Jesus' words here in Matthew 6 are rather unsettling. They were unsettling to those who listened who listened to them when he spoke these words, and they remain unsettling to this very day. In fact, Jesus' words here are so unsettling that in that day and down through the ages to our day, the human bent, the propensity on our part, even among genuine followers of Jesus, is to try to explain away or rationalize his hard teachings, to make light of them, to allegorize them, to make them hyperbole rather than prayerfully considering how what Jesus says here needs to apply in our lives and how changing our ways of being and doing are necessary to more fully align with God's heart and with the priorities of his kingdom. Craig Keener, in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, puts it this way, Jesus assaulted the whole human race at the point where that race is most sensitive its desire for security and superiority. So what is Jesus saying to us here? I think there are three things in Matthew 6 that Jesus is saying to us, and I want to give, while I didn't lift this verbatim, I leaned very heavily on Craig Keener's commentary for this. I want to give credit where credit is due. So what is Jesus saying? First, 
If his disciples are really trusting God with the entirety of our lives, we will treasure that which is of eternal value above the things of this world. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Are we valuing the things of this life with the highest level of priority or are we valuing those things which are of God's eternal kingdom? What do we want? we allow ourselves, secondly, if we allow ourselves to be controlled by earthly possessions and the stuff of this world, it will blind us to God's truth. Matthew 6, through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The camera on my cell phone um, one side has two little lenses for the camera and one side the glass is cracked because I dropped it and um, I'm a tightwad and I am um, not buying another phone until this one dies especially because I'm irritated because they fixed it now so you can't replace the batteries it's just a way to make you buy a new phone in my opinion um, but what that means is that if I just pick up my phone camera and go to take a picture it automatically goes don't ask me how all this works I'm not the tech person but it automatically goes to the lens that has the crack, and the picture will be very fuzzy. If I zoom in or zoom out a little bit, somehow it shifts to the other lens, and the picture is crystal clear. But our spiritual lives, if we allow the things of this world to creep in and affect our priorities, is like that cracked lens. Things become fuzzy. Things become dull. They're not clear. They're not precise. Like cataracts. Yes, Pete, like cataracts. And... And our, our thinking and our sight and our vision become skewed. We need to guard against that so that our light doesn't become darkness. If we allow ourselves to be controlled by earthly possessions and the stuff of this world, it will blind us to God's truth. And then third, you cannot serve two masters. To try to love two, in the case of Matthew 6, God and money is idolatry. And Jesus here, talking about serving two masters, God and money, really is speaking and referring to a situation that was unusual but happened from time to time in that culture where you had this odd situation where a, a slave, a servant that was owned by someone, became owned equally by two masters, usually by the death of a master and then the division of his estate among his heirs. And that was an absolutely untenable situation because it led to a conflict of loyalties and right obedience. You may have one master telling the slave, the servant to do this, and the other master telling him to do something completely contrary to what the first master said, and you can't live that way. And the slave naturally was going to gravitate toward and favor one master over the other. And the same is true with us when it comes to 
fidelity to God as our master or being mastered by money or by things in this world. You cannot split yourself and divide your loyalties. I cannot split myself and divide my loyalties between the two. We will either love one and hate the other or the converse. We cannot serve two masters. This is true for you and me with our finances and other, every other aspect of our lives. We can only serve one master. Our loyalties, brothers and sisters, cannot, they must not be divided. And to allow this to happen, to allow our loyalties to be divided is idolatry. Meaning that we have allowed something or someone else to occupy that place in our lives which rightly belongs to God and to God alone if we are disciples of Jesus Christ. New Testament scholar Craig Blumberg puts it this way, Many perceptive observers have sensed that the greatest danger to Western Christianity is not, as is sometimes alleged, prevailing ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather the all-pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. And I think Blumberg is spot on there. Not that these other things are not concerns, but look at the culture around us. Look at the culture in the church at large. I don't see Marxism and Islam as the same level of a threat as our own lust after material things and the stuff of this world. To whom or what are we surrendered? And then third and finally, it's not about wealth. It's about the priorities of the heart. Looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It is all too common for people to say things like, I will give my life to God. I will serve Jesus. I will wholeheartedly serve God and his kingdom when or after. And you fill in the blank. Or for the believer, I will give more of myself to God. I will respond to God's call on my life. I will start serving more. I will begin tithing. When? And again, you fill in the blank. Brothers and sisters, that's not the way it works. Because to be in any of these places or holding to any of these perspectives means that something or someone other than God is first in our lives. We are giving to other things or other people a degree of priority which is rightfully and should be God's alone. And it means that we have not really wholeheartedly and fully surrendered to God, at least in certain areas of our lives. Because the implication at its core of this is that we think or we believe that we can't really trust God. I know that's hard, but, it, but it's true. You see, and, and I can fall into this trap very easily. We want a backup plan. We want a plan B, a plan that we have set in place. What that says is that we somehow want to remain in the place of control that should be surrendered to God. We want a backstop. We want 
to make sure in some temporal way where we've got it all figured out in our head, which we really don't, that we know how things are going to work out and what the plan is. How many of you know that does, life doesn't work that way? Things just don't work this way. And think about it this way. If we cannot be faithful stewards of what is already entrusted to us, and I'm not talking just about money, to be clear, much more. Money is just one piece. But if we cannot be faithful stewards of that which is already entrusted to us, in other words, we are failing to trust God with what we already have, what makes us think that we will trust God with more? Or that we will trust God when we reach a certain benchmark and to kind of come back to those filling in the blanks that we talked about just a moment ago. I've known people over the years, more than one, who will say, I will give my life to Jesus when? I will give my life and serve Christ after I've done this, 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 and this. And brothers and sisters, it almost never happens because what's going on there? There's a lack of surrender. There's a lack of sense of gra the gravity of the situation and the call of God on our lives. And also, people basically are saying, I want to sow my own. I want to sow my oats. I want to live my wild and ungodly life. And then I'll use Jesus as my parachute. It doesn't work that way. And what happens is, as they go about living this way, they allow Satan to have his way with them. And they invite him to become more and more entrenched in their lives. And they never commit their lives to Jesus because those strongholds become so deep, they become more and more blind. But it's not just with the call to salvation. I've seen people, I will serve Christ more. I will be used and allow God to use my gifts and my talents and the skills he has given me when I get to this point in my career or when I retire or when my kids are grown or after I get married. It doesn't work that way. I've watched people with a call to vocational ministry on their lives. Once I get to this point, then I will explore vocational ministry. Then I will go to seminary. Then I will do this. And full confession here, pointing at me, I ran from the call to vocational ministry for 10 years. Uh, that's stupid. You know, I liked my, my job in construction management, but I ran from the call of God for 10 years. Not a wise thing to do. We can always find excuses. We can always find some what seems like reasonable justification for holding back from God. I'll trust God with my finances when I get to this point. I will start tithing when I get the promotion. I will start tithing when I make this much. And the reality is, and I'm speaking to everybody, including our young people, if you can't tithe on the small amount you're making, even with a part-time job, don't think you're going to do it when you think you've arrived. Because there will always be a reason to put that off. There will always be a reason in our minds why we can't do it now, 
if we don't surrender to God and take the step of faith and trusting him. And you will never know. You will never know from that perspective the reality of God's truth that he makes the 90% or even less than 90% go further than the 100% because it's a spiritual thing. And until we take that step and plunge in and trust God, we'll never see the reality of his grace and blessing in that way. The example of the Macedonian churches in 2 Corinthians stands all of this erroneous thinking on its head. Look at verses 1 through 5 of 2 Corinthians 8 with me. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Don't miss that right there. The grace of God that has been given to the churches of Macedonia. All of this happens by God's grace. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. There's the heart of the matter right there. They gave themselves first to the Lord. First to the Lord. The Macedonian churches are a beautiful picture of surrender, of faithful stewardship, and of priorities aligned with God's heart and God's kingdom. So I come back to the question I asked at the beginning. What is our heart's desire? What do you want? Is our heart's desire God? Is our heart's desire more of God? Do we want God? Or do we want, and again, this doesn't work, some of God, but we also want a whole bunch of this stuff over here. Then the second question, with an honest heart assessment, to whom or what are we surrendered? Can we not trust the one who gave his son, his eternal son, to shed his life's blood to redeem us? The God who went to ends beyond what any of us could ever accomplish on our own to bring us into relationship and union with him? He loves us that much. And he simply calls us to surrender, to trust, and allow him to be our source and supply because he alone is. What is our heart's desire? What do you want? And to whom or what are we surrendered and what maybe needs to go so that we can be more fully surrendered to Christ and his kingdom? Let us pray. Father, you alone are our supply and our source for our very lives, spiritual and physical. And you love us beyond our comprehension of what love even is. So, Lord, may, like King David, our heart's desire be you. You, intimate fellowship, surrender, 
fidelity to you? May that be the question, or may that be the answer to the question, what do we want? And Lord, speak to us even now. Show us where we have not surrendered to you, where we are trusting in self, in our ways, our plans, our designs, where we're trusting in idols that we've allowed to be erected in our lives. And Lord, by your grace and your mercy, speak to us that we may repent and that those idols may be cast down and smashed in the ground. That we, with all of our being, would trust you and love you and serve you, our good and great King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.